0: So we're in Matthew 15. We've been going through Matthew since the beginning of the year. We're gonna go all the way through the end of the book. It'll probably take us up to about 4th of July, so at least to the end of June. We're at Matthew 15 today, and this chapter records the final days of Jesus doing ministry in the north of Israel. So if you think about, um, if you go on a map today and you look at the nation of Israel, it's very similar to how the nation looked at the time uh, of uh, the first century, very similar to what it looked like at the time of David, plus or minus uh, you know, a few couple hundred uh, acres. But the idea of where this general area exists is still... Still there today and if you look at israel you can kind of draw a line in the middle right in between like the dead sea in the bottom uh, and the sea of Galilee in the north and you kind of get a sense that this nation has been historically split in two this has always been the case when the children of israel were freed from egypt and followed joshua into the promised land and they set up the nation of israel they were one nation split among 12 tribes but sin crept in They wanted a king they got a horrible one and this guy named Saul Saul died David took over as king Uh, David's son Solomon took over as king things seemed to be at peace it was one nation things were good Uh, but right around like 930 uh, BC um, Solomon's son Rehoboam took over and he was not a really great guy he was full of pride and essentially when he took over, he took the role of kind of a taskmaster. It made everybody in Israel upset and they began to rebel. And the product of the rebellion was very similar than, uh, to a, a civil war like here in America, north versus the south, uh, except at the end, there actually was a divided nation. They didn't stay together at the end of it. So Rehoboam, became or stayed the king um, of what we would have referred to as Judah or Southern Israel. And a new guy took over, his name was Jeroboam. He became the king of Northern Israel and they refer to them affectionately as Israel. So from around 930 BC, it wasn't a solid one nation anymore. It was a nation split in two. You've got Southern Judah, Southern Israel in the uh, the South, Judah, and you've got Northern Israel, Israel in um, the North. Now what happened during this time period um, was a long history in Northern Israel of idolatry. Because what would happen was, or what happened was when the nation split, the temple that Solomon had built was in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem after the split was in Judah, in the southern tribes. So what do you do if you are a northern Jew and you can't go to the south to worship at the temple because that's off limits territory? Well, you build your own shrines. You build your own little mini temples. And so what started happening in the north was all these little mini shrines, mini temples that started um, being built up in the high places, up in the mountains, because typically up in northern Israel, there's a lot of mountainous terrain. And so what would happen was in the south, you had people still coming to the temple for worship. The Davidic uh, line, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all, all of those kings, they stayed true to that, uh, that lineage. But in the northern kingdom, you got all kinds of wild stuff happening. You got people, this family, they wanna build their own personal temple over here. And this family over here, we're gonna go to this temple and we're gonna go on, not on the festival dates, but whenever is most comfortable. And so what happened during this period from like 930 to about 722, you had the Northern Israel just being wild when it came to idolatry. And prophets rose up and were were speaking words to Israel, you need to repent, you gotta tear down these high places of worship and they didn't listen. So God rose up this nation called Assyria to come in and destroy the Northern kingdom and completely wipe them out. Well, eventually that idolatry creeped into the South and in 586, Babylon came in and wiped them out. And that's what we get during the period of like the book of Daniel um, when there's essentially no more people living in Israel because they've all been deported uh, as slaves in Babylon. But I bring that up because what's happening in Matthew 15 today is Jesus has been ministering in the North. He's ministering primarily around the Sea of Galilee. That's where his ministry kicked off. He's going to end there today. After we finish, he's going to start heading back down to Jerusalem. But the idea that Jesus spent most of his early ministry in the north speaks volumes to us about God's heart. These are people who for many, many years just essentially came up with their own view and their own idea of God and they intermingled with people in the area, and then they had these little weird offshoots of their own religion where it kind of, you were worshiping God, but you were also worshiping these false idols, and it was just a complete mess. So Jesus coming to these people and spending the early parts of his ministry, ministering to them, says a lot to us about how little geography and history um, just can't stand up to the power of Jesus's redemption. We, as a people, like to think, well, man, you crossed that line three years ago, and so you've kind of been written out of my book. You're out of my will. I'm not talking to you. The only way I can function is to just make you disappear. I'm going to pretend like you don't exist. Well, God's not like that. God came to the people who historically in his family were the worst of the worst. And I wanted to bring that up before we got into Matthew 15, because I think that that is an important principle for us as Christians to live by when we're doing things like scrolling through our social media feed or when we're looking at our current circumstances like we're watching the news. It is easy for us to think we are different, we are separate, and because we have stayed true, then these other people have disqualified themselves. Well, we're told in the Bible that not until death does someone completely disqualify themselves, because you can't get saved after you die. But there might be some point in the future. Imagine what it was like. Uh, some of, let's say that some of you guys came to uh, saving faith in like your 30s. Imagine what it would have been like if Jesus just at like 22 just said, you know what? You are more than I can handle. I've had enough. Right? Imagine where your family would be if Jesus had just said, I'm pulling the ejection cord. I've had enough. No, he hasn't had enough. He's patient. He's long-suffering with us. When we are not worth being long suffered against, we are the kind of people who it would, just be, it would just be easier if we were just done with. We should not have patience with each other. He should have not had patience with us. He should not have spent the early parts of his ministry in the north to people who were not faithful to him. But he did. And because he did, we should. Does that make sense? Amen. That should frame out how we view the world we live in and who we spend our time with when it comes to sharing the love of God. Amen? Okay, so Matthew 15, let's get into verse one. We know from last week that he crossed over into an area called Gennesaret, so he's probably, uh, he's still up in the northern regions around the Sea of Galilee. This is probably somewhere around the north or possibly the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. So the Pharisees, while he's up there ministering, verse one, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, so uh, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Oof, that's a good burn. That's a really good burn. I just, I want to imagine like his face when he says it, like he's got to say that with a smile on his face, right? Like, why are you guys breaking the commandment of God at the sake of your tradition for God commanded honor your father and your mother your (laughs) mother that's funny honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die that's God's command but you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me I'm sorry I gave it to God he need not honor his father So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. All right, let's pause right there and kind of reflect on what's happening. So up until this point, Jesus has been ministering up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't have a lot of critics. Nobody's coming to check in on him up until this point. Some Pharisees have been coming by and making comments and questions, but we're told at this point that an official delegation from Jerusalem has now traveled all the way north up to the Sea of Galilee to ask Jesus some questions. And one of the first questions they ask him is, why aren't aren't your disciples honoring the traditions of our fathers. Why aren't they washing their hands before they eat? Now, this isn't the first time a delegation came up to inspect somebody's ministry. We see this happen with John the Baptist. But the irony of this idea is that a group of humans are coming up to inspect God and his word. Seems ridiculous to me. Because Jesus is God. So a group of humans are coming to God saying, "Um, we have to have a conversation with you because I don't know uh, that what you're doing is what you said before. The audacity for us to look at the word of God and say, "Um, I don't know if that means what you think it means. (laughs) To, To assume that the position of change is on his shoulders rather than ours. Society's a little bit different, God. I know that when this was written, it was a long time ago, but we've progressed a lot as a society. There's a lot of people who have a lot of new freedoms, and I feel like that should be taken into account for some of these old outdated commands you've given us. The audacity to tell the creator, the one who made us, how he should run his family. That's how ridiculous it sounds when we approach God with our issues with his world. So these guys come to Jesus and one of their first issues are, we take issue with the fact that the traditions that we've established, not the laws you've commanded, the traditions we've established are not being observed by you and your disciples, So let's visit for a second what this tradition is, because this tradition has its roots in God's command, because in Exodus chapter 30, verses 20 through 21, God tells the Israelites, hey, if you're a priest and you're on duty, you need to go through this process of ceremonial washing. You need to wash your hands, wash your garment. There's a process of washing that is official that these priests needs to do. Now, what the tradition of the elders said was, well, that's a pretty good thing. How about We just go ahead and assume that the thing that God commanded these uh, priests to um, live their life by is something that we're gonna make everybody live their life by. Now, in and of itself, the idea of like, okay, in my own home, I'm gonna reflect what the priests were doing because I like what God's doing there, right? He's, man, you can't come into my presence unless you're clean. That's good. I want to teach my kids that. You don't come into God's presence unless you're clean. So if an individual family says, man, you know what? We're going to wash before we eat. That's perfectly fine. But to extend the tradition and start saying that this tradition has now been elevated to the level of command, that you can now not come before God unless you do the things, that's where the issue lies. The desire inside the human heart to want to say, I want my traditions to be on the same level of God's commands. So when this comes up, Jesus says, why why are we breaking tradition? Why am I not telling my disciples to follow your rules? Why why are you guys breaking commands? And the command that he cites to kind of make his argument is this this command where um, God told his people, you need to honor your father and mother. And not just when you're little, Because the context of what he's talking about here means honoring your father and mother all the way up into their old age. The honoring of your father and mother is not just a little kid saying, yes sir, yes ma'am, I'm going to trust you. The honoring of your father and mother carries all the way into their old age because there's not a retirement system within the nation of Israel. There's no governmental structure taking care of older folks in this nation. There is only families caring for their family. And so what God says is, you have a responsibility to honor your father and mother in their old age to care for them. Not necessarily that they have to live, for you, live with you, but you have to care for them. You've got to take care of them. Meaning the, the wealth, the money, your estate should be set aside in a way to be able to care for them somehow. But the tradition of the elders came in and said, hey, there's another thing that we can let you do. We can, we can, this would be pretty cool. How about we just let you donate your estate to the temple so that all of your estate, all of your wealth can be used for God's purposes. Everybody's like, that's a great idea. And we'll even, we'll even so we gotta live somewhere, right? So if you decide as a family, we're gonna donate my estate to the temple, that means I can live in this estate and still operate and spend all the expenses that I normally would, um, but I can't, exp- I can't use the finances from this estate on anybody other than my immediate family, my, my wife, my kids. And then when we die, all of that estate and money goes to the temple. So when my elderly parents come and say, we, we, we're, we're too old to work. I, I, I literally can't hold things like I used to. I, 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 need, I need you. Can I come live with you? I need, some, I need some care. Can you get me a house on the back end of your property? I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you, but I gave all of my estate to the temple. I don't know if you've heard, but I'm the holiest one in town. Every, I didn't give 10%, man, I gave 100%. Everything went to God. And because of that, I don't know what to tell you, but I, I, there's no, I got nothing left for you. Sorry, good luck. And so you got 93-year-old grandma, she's got nowhere to do. And this is Jesus' argument. I, do you honestly think that your traditions can rise above God's commandments and in essence, wipe them out completely? Do you think that when God says, here's how I want you to to approach me and worship me, then you can come back to him with a counter offer and say, I've got something even better. I bet you didn't think about this. How great is this idea? That's exactly how they were living and that's exactly how a lot of us are living. We're, We're convinced that we could be more dedicated in our heart. We're convinced that we could be more affectionate and not use the way he told us to be affectionate to him. Well, his response is: Look, your your worship is shallow. You're committed to God, but your heart it's far from Him. Your hunger for teaching it only it produces no change. You think that you're doing religious things, but it actually has no effect. Now, let's for a moment before we go any further take these words of Jesus and apply them in our current circumstances, okay? How do we take this section of scripture, verses one through nine, and reflect on where we're living and apply them in a way that is helpful for us? Well, I would, I would argue that as Christians, not just as Christians, but it's applying to us as Christians, as humans, we all have three areas of our life that we should kind of reference when it comes to making decisions, right? There are one, God's commands. There are two, church traditions, and there are three personal preferences. There are God's commands, church traditions, and personal preferences. An example of God's commands would be like, don't forsake the gathering. Like a lot of y'all do, don't forsake the gathering. Don't make excuses to not regularly show up and gather as a church and worship in person with your people, elevating your God above your life. Stop avoiding that. That's a command. Can't get around it. But there are also traditions, church traditions, like where you gather, what the building looks like. Does it look like a gym? Does it look like a nice formal building with some beautiful stained glass? What time do you gather? Well, we traditionally gather at 10 a.m., right? We dress casually. There's church traditions where, man, if if I was a part of a different church tradition, I'd be wearing full-on robes, not boots and flannel. Right? I'd have a collar or, you know, I I would at least have my shirt tucked in. Different church tradition. Other examples of tradition would be like worship style, music style. Are we singing formal hymns out of a book? Are we singing words up on a screen with a band being led by a guitar or a piano? Are we singing modern songs or traditional songs? And then there's personal preferences. And personal preferences get down to individual, your own likes. Things like your own personal genre. The kind of music that you like. Some of you are cer- into some kind of certain kinds of music and some of you are like, oh, I I'm, 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 I'm like this kind of stuff and I don't like. That's fine, that's personal preferences. No one's telling you that you gotta be, a, you gotta like this kind of music to be a part of this church. Even if the style of worship that we sing on Sunday morning is not your cup of tea, that's okay. You don't have to go home and listen to this stuff in your car on the way home. You can listen to whatever you want. Those are your personal preferences. Other personal preferences would be like, um, uh, maybe you have a, a kind of a, um, a proclivity to a specific kind of pastor or a specific kind of teacher. Like I like people who are more manuscript, like they're, they're just reading and a little bit of eye contact, but it's really been prepared and organized. And what they like, the words have been crafted correctly. So when, they, when he speaks, it's really passionate. I like these kind of guys who, they don't do a whole lot. There's a whole lot of walking. There's a whole lot of looking. There's a whole lot of talking, right? I love it when a pastor opens the Bible and reads one verse and then talks for 50 minutes on one verse. Personal personal preference, right? I can't stand that, but personal preference. Okay? You're here, so you probably can't stand that. We're going to read what? 39 verses today. Whole chapter. But all of that comes down to personal preference. I like Lucky Goat coffee. You don't have to, you can like Starbucks. I mean, it's okay to be wrong. But the point is that you can have your personal preference. The problem is when you get commands, traditions, and preferences out of order. That's the problem. When you get to a place when your preferences go above traditions, then you start getting upset at your local church and you start thinking, oh, this is about me when it's not about you. When you start putting your traditions above God's commandments, or when you start putting your preferences above God's commandments, all of a sudden you start only obeying the things you like and ignoring the things in God's word that you don't like. And that's a dangerous place to live. Because when you start doing that, what happens is elevating these preferences and traditions um, above God's commands is it creates a judgmental attitude towards other believers. Oh, you go to that kind of church? Well, (laughs) good luck getting into heaven. You know it's a narrow gate, right? Just saying. It blinds you to the beauty of, of all the things that God's doing in all of his different churches, right? You're convinced it's only this one way. It's very denominational, right? It also lies to you about your, sanctua- or your your Excuse me, your sanctification and your maturity. You start telling yourself that you're more mature and you're farther along than you actually are. Why? Because you're only obeying the things that you like. And those are easy things. And the things you don't like, you ignore them and so you pretend they don't exist, and so your Christian life is easy. It's not hard being a Christian. If, it's, if, if you look at your life and you're like, man, being a Christian is the easiest thing I've ever done. You're not doing it right. You were sold a false gospel, and you're doing things wrong. You're not doing things according to the Bible. But the other thing that it does is it kind of, for church folks, it pulls us um, in a way where our heart is just so affectionate for the good old days. When we elevate our church tradition of, above God's commands, then it doesn't really, it's not about coming to a church, coming to as a church body, gathering together and, and, and saying, man, I'm here because I want to be transformed. I'm here because I want to elevate Jesus above it. No, I'm here because I've always been here and I'll always be here and I'm going to die here. That's what it's about. If you elevate traditions above everything else, then your local thing that you've always done becomes the highlight of your week and there's no room for Jesus if your church or your pastor is sitting on that throne. There's a problem if I'm the only person you can hear the word of God from. Th- that's a problem. You may have a personal preference to specifically like my style of teaching, that's perfectly fine. But if you get to a place in your life where well, I can't hear from anybody else unless he's here, if he takes a vacation and, and um, if, if somebody tells him I'm not going, that's a problem There's an issue if you can only worship Jesus if a certain song or a certain artist is on. That's an issue in your heart because you have elevated your personal preference above God's command to sing and worship Jesus. I asked my wife if I should tell a joke at this point. I'm not typically a joke in the service pastor, but I ran across this one and I thought it was kind of funny. You might not find it funny. I'm not gonna start being one of those guys. So you don't have to worry about me telling stories about my family constantly and telling jokes that aren't funny, but this one's kind of funny. Um, how many church people does it take to change a light bulb? Well, 10, because one actually changes the bulb and the other nine talk about how good the old bulb was. Some of you are like, I, just, I don't get it. <laughs> you just got to be in church longer. All right, Matthew 15, 10. So Matthew 15, 10, it says, he called to the people. So after he addresses the Pharisees, he calls the people who are gathered around to them. And he says, all right, guys, hear and understand. Now that is an imperative. Is, those verbs are an imperative. That's a command. He's commanding these people. I want you to hear. So hear what I'm saying, but I also want you to understand, it's a two-step process. You can't just come on Sunday and hear the word. You've gotta let the Holy Spirit work on the inside of you so you hear it and you also understand so that there's heart change. So guys, hear and understand, verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended at you when they heard that message? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> it's so funny. Man, sometimes they were just so clueless. Because <laughs> in their mind, they're thinking, no, these are the guys. Like, these are the guys who, they were, these guys taught my, you know, Hebrew class when I was in third grade. Do you know that you offended, you know, rabbi, whatever? Do you, do you, do you know you upset them? And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus responds, he answers, look, every plant that my father, my heavenly father has planted, um, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. So just leave them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Ah, well, first, Jesus, that's not politically correct. You can't talk uh, about, you know, that. You can't say blind people leading blind people. That, you can't talk like that. You can't talk about these religious leaders that way. You, you upset them. Shouldn't you go and talk with them and apologize? No, I, I shouldn't. Verse 15, Peter said to him, um, Jesus, can you, uh, can you explain that parable to us? And Jesus says, are you still without understanding, Peter? I love this. Peter's got enough courage to ask. But Jesus is like, really? Like this one seems like it's pretty on the nose. And he responds to verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? That's exactly what you think it is. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. Don't you understand that the words that come out of your mouth, the things that you say, the stuff you do, it's birthed in here, deep inside you, and that stuff that comes out, that's what defiles you. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anybody. So what Jesus is getting across here is that there are, there are outward rituals that we do that are an expression of what we believe, but don't change our spiritual standing at all. We're convinced as a people that we can somehow manipulate the process and if we can do enough outward stuff, the things that we're in control of, then somehow we can shift our, 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 well, our political perspective on heaven, right? Our standing with the kingdom of God, the God of all creation, that we can change his opinion of us by the amount of things that we do or we don't do. And Jesus is like, "That's, that's not how it works. You're not gonna be more defiled because you didn't do one thing. And you're not gonna be clean before a heavenly God because you did these things over here that were outward expressions. This stuff is simply a representation of stuff that's already taken place. But you gotta understand that what defiles us, what, what, what constitutes a transgression or a crossing of the line starts in here, inside, and if that's true, then the only hope we have of some it is somebody fixing stuff on the inside. You cannot get into heaven or stand before a holy God with the argument, "I did more good things than bad things today." That will get you nowhere. And the reason why is because your scale is off. It is not possible for you to do more good things than bad things in a day. You were conceived in iniquity. You were born into sin. You were created into this world by your father and your mother, Adam and Eve, making disobedient choices that were passed down through the bloodline and you were born into this world needing work on the inside. And you, since it's on the inside and you can't perform surgery on yourself, you need outside help. And Jesus is arguing, look, guys, hear and understand, you're not going to change your posture before a holy God by doing or not doing a list of things that you have prescribed for yourself as good or bad. The only hope you have is surrender. The only hope you have is to sell everything you have, emotionally, spiritually, physically, to buy the treasure buried in the field because that's the thing that's only, that's the only thing that's really worth anything in this world. And so your idea that, well, I mean, I, I, I could have this thriving thing or I could have my affections turned toward this thing here in the world and also worship Jesus on Sunday morning, the only person you're lying to is yourself. That's not how it works. It's either complete surrender or you're lying to yourself. So from here, Matthew starts, Matthew the writer, starts giving us these two stories that really uh, draw on this powerful imagery of bread. The idea that, that Jesus is the bread of life and he of himself feeds us in a way where we can't be fed by anything else. So think of it like this, the world wants to feed your soul with all this garbage and Jesus wants to feed your soul with himself. He wants to be your portion. Now you can feast on the garbage Of the world and feel some sense of oh that was tasty but you're really just eating out of a garbage can there's still a little bit of flavor in the garbage can but it's still a garbage can or you can feast on jesus you can feast on the bread of life and we're told that he fills us in a way that nothing in this world can fill us so that is the imagery baked into, pardon my expression, baked into this idea of bread that we're going to talk about. Now it's not specific, he doesn't call that out, but this is what's underneath the surface of Matthew tying these two stories of bread together. Let's read the first one, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Uh, For those of you playing at home, you can also, this story uh, is paralleled in Mark 7. So if you want to go read this from another perspective from here on, go to Mark 7 later on and read it. But we're in Matthew 15, 21. It says that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon are uh, cities that are in uh, Lebanon today. So if you looked at the map, that's what they would be. They're kind of on the coast, but they're certainly in Gentile regions. This is not Israel. It is cities inhabited almost entirely of Gentiles. Uh, A Jewish historian named Josephus tells us there were a, a lot of Jews living in this area because of Roman persecution, but Jesus doesn't go to minister to any of the Jews. He's only talking to one Gentile wise in this city. So verse 22, behold, while he's in these cities, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to beg him saying, will you send her away? For she is crying out after us. So she's not stopping, she's persistent. So finally he answers He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But at that moment, she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Oof too sharp. Jesus responded, oh woman, <laughs> oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now the region Jesus is in was like northwest of where he was in Galilee. And I think that Matthew is telling us that he traveled there because Jesus is trying to get us to understand. Well, he's trying to get his disciples to understand, but he's also trying to get us to understand. This trip demonstrates something very profound, that Gentiles have always been part of the plan. If you all go go all the way back to the Old Testament, there's this girl named Rahab the harlot who spared a couple spies when they went into Jericho. And later on, she marries into the family. She's not a Jew, but she marries into the family and she's in the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus takes time away from the northern region of Israel to go minister in these two cities. And I I can't help but feel like what he's doing geographically is teaching his disciples that, hey, there's coming a day when these folks are gonna hear the message too. So just know that. It eventually comes around in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem where they make the decision, hey, yeah, absolutely. God has said all along he was gonna rebuild the tabernacle of David. He said all along the Gentiles were part of it. So who are we to tell God that they can't be part of his plan? And I think what Jesus is doing by going into these regions, he's communicating that these people were always part of the plan that he was going to come near to the Gentiles. God would be amongst the people. And that is good news because most of you in here are not Jewish. And the only reason why we are brought into the family is because God in his mercy and his love and in his grace grafted us, the outsiders, into the people of promise through the blood of Jesus. And that's good news. So on this trip, he meets this Canaanite woman and she's crying out, but she says a few uh, interesting things. She cries out, son of David, she calls him Lord. So she's affirming his power and his role. She knows who he is and she's appealing to his authority. She's persistent in her requests and she's appealing to Jesus for compassion. Lord, please help me. My daughter is possessed with demons. Help me. And what's interesting is she, a Gentile, is modeling the kind of faith that Jesus wants to see in his own people. Now, Jesus knew that this woman had faith because he's Jesus. He knows everything. But I think he's talking with her for our benefit. This conversation they're having was recorded by Matthew for the early church, but also for us. It teaches us something very important about the way we should approach our father. We should approach him with persistence in prayer, And it informs us on how we should view outsiders. Jesus had time for those who were perceived as outside. Jesus loved when his people persisted in prayer. So those are qualities about the way we should live and the way we should pray that we should model from the story. But it also teaches us that we shouldn't get offended at Jesus's words because did he call her a dog? Yes and no. Like, well, I mean... How often do we read Jesus' words and we're like, well, that is very offensive to me. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. I'm going to have to go back and think about that for a moment. Like the audacity, the humor, the fact that we hear God saying something from his word and we have to go think about it. Well, it does sound silly, but that's the truth because the depth of sin in our life, the root, it's deeper than you think. It affects the way you think. It affects your bank account, it affects your calendar in ways you can't imagine, it affects your parenting. It, it affects the way you react to people while you're driving in your car. It's deep. And so when you hear the truth, you do have to go back and you've gotta understand not just whether this is true, but how much this affects and what it's gonna start pulling up. But ultimately, you do, you do gotta start pulling you got to let go of that stuff. you got to get that stuff out of your heart. Now, what's interesting is when he refers to her, he, he's this phrase, he says, it's not fair to take food from the children and give it to dogs. He's giving us this concept. He's giving us this kind of word picture that from Jesus' perspective, we're looking at a family table. He's not saying, well, it's not, like, I can't just give the dog any food. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it would be a mark of a bad father to take food off of my child's plate and give it to the dog. I can't take things out of my kids' mouths to feed the family pet. Some of you might do that. But Jesus is saying that's a mark of a bad father. The point being that from her perspective, she's saying, I understand what you're saying, but even the crumbs fall to the end and we're able to get some of that blessing. Your grace is so abundant that I don't need you to take the food out of your kids' mouths. I just need you to show me some compassion and let some of those crumbs fall to the floor. And Jesus' point was grace does fall to the floor in the context of a home. And if you look at the world as God's home, you've got some rebellious kids, you've got some faithful kids, and the argument would be, we're not gonna take the grace away from God's family to extend it to non-believers, but there is this idea, the theological word for it would be common grace, that within God's family, there is plenty of stuff that exists, that falls in a sense onto the world and they can enjoy whether they're a believer or not. Psalm 145 9 says this, it says the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Meaning there are certain things that, well, not certain things, all things, all things were originated and created in God And you don't have to be a believer to enjoy those things. Non-believers drink water, eat food, and breathe air every single day. You don't have to be a believer to live. But those things are things that were created by God and we enjoy as common grace. Now why do those exist? Why would God be good to all, even those that don't want, and don't, don't even affirm that he exists, why would his mercy be over all things for two reasons. One, this common grace exists because it is a billboard that God does exist. I can see that there is a God because when I look at the creation that I enjoy on a daily basis, I can't deny that it wasn't orchestrated by a creator. But the other purpose that it serves is it stands as evidence in judgment against a person at the end of the age when they stand before a holy God and say, I didn't know you existed at all. Well, you ate my food, and you drank my water, and you breathed my air, and you lived a solid 90 years on this earth, surrounded by my grace. How, what evidence, what defense do you possibly have? What evidence could you, Submit that would counter the fact that you lived 90 whatever years enjoying my mercies and my grace, but you didn't want anything to do with me. That is a sobering reality. That not one person will have an excuse when they stand before a holy God on why they rejected Him. And there will be punishment for that. Eternal punishment. Now, verse 29, let's go ahead and finish the chapter as we read through these last ones. From this point, Jesus went on from there. And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So he, from, from uh, the Sea of Galilee, he went up, went up to Lebanon, and he came back down through the mountains, he went around the Sea of Galilee. Now he's on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain, he sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified God, glorified the God of Israel. So at this point, verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have have compassion on the crowd. Well, no kidding, Jesus, you've just been healing everyone they brought to you. Your compassion is what drew the crowd. But he has compassion on them now because they're hungry. They've been with them now for three days and they've got nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we gonna get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, do you remember what I did? No, Do you remember last chapter when, no. And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men, not even counting the women and the children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So Jesus returned to Galilee and we see that because of his compassion, he's drawing these great crowds. Now that's an important point for us church people. Jesus didn't draw a crowd with good music or giveaways or a great ad campaign. He did it with compassion. He drew crowds with compassion. He cared for people. And that's it. Which is interesting because if we want to make a large impact for Jesus, if we want to build his kingdom in substantial ways, the prescription on how to do that is right here. Show compassion. Show compassion. That's it. That's what it takes to be a healthy church. Show compassion. Not further and establish more programs or build a bigger building or chase some vision or dream. It's show compassion. That's what drew the crowds. That's the impact Jesus made when he showed compassion, which is funny to me because for us, Really, all it means is leading people to the deep well of God and showing them how to drink. All it means is bringing people into our homes and breaking the bread of Christ and showing them how to be fed. And we think, man, there are so many amazing things that could be done if we just established a few more programs in this church. We've got the prescription for what we're supposed to follow, but we're convinced it's something else. Now, it can't be that easy. It can't just be showing compassion. It's gotta be showing compassion and something else. I I got news for you. It's nothing else. Jesus didn't even have a home to live in. He didn't even drive a car. He didn't own an airplane. He showed compassion, and that is what made the difference. So when Jesus is gathering this crowd in a desert, desolate place. Out of this compassion, he wants to feed them. This is where we're going to close up today. And what he did to show compassion is he says, look, these guys are hungry. I don't want to send them away hungry. So what are we going to do? How do we feed them? And his disciples like, well, I got, you know, these little, I got just a couple loaves of bread and some fish. It's not much. And Jesus says, give it to me. He broke it. He took the seven loaves of bread and the fish, he spread it around and it was, it was enough to feed over 4,000 people. Now this is an important principle in this section of scripture, that the work of God is almost always accomplished by the giving of the little we have. Now this is important. God doesn't need what you have, but you need to give what you have to God. That's the need. He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't even need you. But in his grace and his mercy, he loves more than anything bringing his kids to work with him and letting you guys get the joy of sending an email. Guess what? The email was going to be sent whether you showed up or not but the joy that you experience in participating in dad's work and the joy he gets in bringing his kids, that is unmatched. And it's why he asks us to join him, not because he needs us, but because he takes joy in using us. So what he asks is, how are we going to accomplish this work? I mean, I got a couple ideas, but how are we going to accomplish this work? What he's looking for, his eyes are to and fro. He's looking for those who want to partner with him. and, And he's looking for those who just say, well, I mean, I, I don't have much. All I've got is this one little talent. It, you, you gave it to me. So uh, the least I could do, I guess, is just give it back to you. And he's like, that's exactly what I wanted. But, but Jesus, it's not going to be enough. My one little thing, my, my one little resource, my one little gifting, my one little talent, it's not enough to make the impact. The whole world is going to hell. It's not enough. And Jesus says, it's enough in my hands. It's, it's not enough in your hands, but it is enough in my hands. So what I need is for you to stop holding on to it. I need you to open your hands, let it go. I'll break it and I'll multiply it. Now here's the funny part about this. If you have been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard that message. You've probably heard it from this section of scripture. In fact, you might've even heard me teach it when we went through this in Mark or last week when we were reading the feeding of the 5,000. It is a common understanding in the uh, teachings of the church um, that when God takes the little we have, he has the ability to multiply it. So it's not a new message. So if you came here today saying, well, I kind of feel let down because I knew that already. Circle back to the joke that I said just a minute ago. Guess who else already knew it? The disciples, they just, last chapter, they just watched Jesus feed 5,000 people by multiplying a little kid's lunch. So you're telling me that not one single person, not one of the 12 disciples said, Jesus, can you do that thing you did last week? Not one of them brought it up. No, not one of them brought it up. You know why? Because they're humans just like we're humans and we all forget. So even though you've heard this message maybe numerous times and you understand deep down the truth that all I have to do is bring the little I have to God and he multiplies it, we need a constant reminder because if there's one thing we're good at is not bringing our little bit to God, it's forgetting what he told us to do. And that's where I want to land today. The reality that as we leave here, what God wants from you is for you to be obedient in submitting to him by giving the little bit that's in your hand so that he can be glorified on the multiplication of it. Not getting your name on some plaque, on some wall because of the great things you accomplished. It is elevating Jesus above all other things because without him, we are accomplishing diddly squat. It is all about him.